You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Howie Wolk is a nationally known advocate for protecting wilderness and was a co-founder of the original Earth First. He's the author of Wilderness on the Rocks and co-author of The Big Outside, a historic inventory of America's remaining wilderness lands with our own Dave Foreman. He has served as the president of the national conservation group Wilderness Watch. Howie has led well over 500 multi-day backcountry treks since the mid-1970s. The founder of Big Wild Adventures, Howie is probably the most experienced backpacking guide in the western U.S., He has a particular affinity for wolves and grizzly bears and is an avid hunter, backcountry skier, river runner, and bird watcher, and has a BS in conservation and wildlife ecology. I started our conversation today by recalling one of my favorite pictures hanging on Dave Foreman's wall. In it, Dave, Howie, Bart Kohler, Ken Sanders, Mike Rozell, and Mark Baker stand in cowboy hats with arms crossed looking all kinds of menacing and tough. To me, the picture is inspirational and powerful. These were the guys to whom David Brower was passing on the Wilderness Protection Torch, a new generation of wilderness advocates that were loud, outspoken, tough, and absolutely did not mess around when it came to protecting the wildlands they loved. That was taken during the early days of Earth First when we had first made a quite a splash on the scene of wildland conservation, especially in the western United States. And Outside Magazine had decided to do a feature uh, article on us, which, unbeknownst to us, was um, uh, they they entitled the article "The Real Monkey Wrench Gang," when in reality that's not the primary thing that the early Earth First was was all about. And I I, I always use the term the early Earth First or the original Earth First to differentiate. Um, the wilderness-oriented group that Dave and I and a few other people helped get off the ground um, versus the thing that's out there now and has been for the last couple decades going by the same name, but um, definitely not focused on, on wilderness anymore. You know, we, we were feeling our oats back then. We had, uh, um, I think we had recently hung the crack down the face of Glen Canyon Dam and made a statement that it wasn't enough to um, protect uh, the remaining wildlands, but we needed to take back wildlands that were already developed and restore wilderness and restore the wildness within the wilderness and reintroduce extirpated species, tear down dams, rip up roads, and reclaim the habitat. And uh, I think that's something that resonates with a lot of people. And interestingly enough, um, in those very early days of Earth First, before the urban leftists took it over and, and ruined it, as far as I'm concerned, in those early days of Earth First, um, Dave and I were prone to saying things like uh, about half of the land area of the United States should be protected as wilderness areas, uh, and that would be a balance between wilderness and non-wilderness use, and we always came up with that because politicians love to throw the term balance around as an excuse for 
developing and scraping and bulldozing and digging and gouging and sucking, pumping, cutting everything off the public lands. And uh, we felt that a real balance would be 50% for humanity and 50% for uh, non-human wild nature. And of course, we were referred to as uh, as hopelessly out of touch radicals for making a suggestion like that. And of course, uh, nowadays we know that some of the top conservation biologists in the world, like E.O. Wilson, have proposed that half of the Earth's surface be set aside as inviolate nature preserves. So uh, maybe we weren't all that crazy back in those days. Well, that is actually kind of wild. It's it's taken an awful long time, but it is weird to be having a very sober conversation now about half. Nature needs half and half Earth. Uh, rewilding yep. belongs to the Nature Needs Half Coalition. But it is kind of wild that you're, you find yourself now today where, where people are just having totally serious conversations about half. It must um, do your heart not, so not, much. Not just... Not just about half Earth, but when we hung that crap down Glen Canyon Dam, I remember uh, the, the the Denver Post editorialized and, and called us a bunch of damn crackers using a play on words, <laughs> and uh, how crazy we were that the idea of taking down dams that cost so much money to build and, and create um, would ever be considered. And uh, here we are uh, in 2020, and uh, uh, I can start naming quite a few dams that have been taken down because people have come to realize how much uh, habitat destruction is entailed in the construction of a dam. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's funny. And, and uh, yesterday's uh, unrealistic radical becomes uh, today's serious topic of conversation. How does that feel in all of the years that you were treated, mistreated, mischaracterized uh, by so many people, the po- politicians, uh, newspapers, and everyone that that now you get to say, well, look at this. Looky here. Well, you know, it exo- obviously exonerates me a little bit, but I've never been too terribly concerned about uh, how other people want to want to label me. Um, but um yeah, you know, it, it it feels good that we're having that conversation. It would feel a lot better if we were actually acting upon it and taking the bull by the horns and trying to arrest this galloping uh, loss of biological diversity slash habitat destruction that's going on both in the United States and, you know, on a, on a worldwide basis. And I I guess where I'm coming from now is, is uh, not too different than where I've always been. Um, you know, either uh, in those early days of Earth First or before that when I was a Wyoming representative for Friends of the Earth and uh, a little bit later on as one of the, the founders of the Wyoming Wilderness Association and, and a number of other groups. And the last few decades I've been working uh, mostly with Wilderness Watch um, as an occasional on and off board member and I've served two terms of president as the president of that organization, Wilderness Watch, which is a great group. It's it's the only group that's truly focused on making sure that existing designated wilderness areas stay wild, that that the bureaucrats actually manage them for wilderness, as is described by the Wilderness Act of 
1964. So, um, you know, I, I haven't changed. I, 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 I'm passionate about wilderness and my activism in the conservation movement, um, was, uh, initiated by and maintained by, and is still maintained by, uh, the passion I have for all things wild. That's what I tell a lot of young people is, is if you're interested in some aspect of protecting the planet, get involved in work in, in whatever your passion is. I think that's really important. And that's something that the conservation movement, uh, unfortunately has, has lost quite a bit of, uh, the passion get, getting back to the basics of, of why I'm in it. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're experiencing what some people call, as you know, uh, Jack, the biological meltdown, um, or the sixth great extinction event in the 3.8 billion year history of organic evolution on planet Earth. Uh, this is the sixth greatest extinction event. Um, and by this, I mean the current loss of biological diversity in, in, in the early 21st century as primary result of habitat destruction, habitat fragmentation, um, and of course, then you have the overlays of overpopulation and climate change. And, uh, you know, we're, we're losing species, according to E.O. Wilson, uh, at the rate of about a thousand times the background rate. In other words, we're losing species a thousand times faster than the planet was losing species before the widespread, um, before humanity became widespread across the planet. And um, these same scientists like E.O. Wilson are saying that by the end of the 21st century, about half the species on the planet could be gone. And so, you know, we have to be talking about habitat destruction, um, climate crisis, and overpopulation in every discussion that we have about trying to keep this planet uh, alive and functioning. A lot of people would probably assume that since wilderness areas are designated all over the United States and different variations on that um, around the world, like the work that Tompkins Foundation is doing in uh, Chile, Patagonia, Argentina, that those places we don't have to worry about as much or at all because they're already protected. And when we talk about the half-Earth movement, we're primarily talking about what we're going to do to get um, lands that are not protected that might need restoration most certainly will need restoration uh, as buffer zones and connections between islands of wilderness um, but I've noticed that there's there's a difference today in what some people think about wil- wilderness how it should be protected what wilderness really is and I think you've probably got a really unique perspective on how it may have been watered down the way that people look at it versus the way you guys looked at it in the very beginning, what wild wilderness was, what it meant to truly protect it, and the ways that people have tried to, industries, politicians have tried to kind of change, gaslight even, people's idea of what true protected wilderness is and should be. Well, sure. You can start right off with um, wilderness bills that no longer follow follow the letter of the Wilderness Act by legislating special provisions into wilderness bills. And, and there was just a, a bill recently introduced in Oregon 
um, that would have allowed ranchers to drive four-wheel drive vehicles across wilderness, water projects to occur in wilderness areas. Um, we're getting wilderness bills with off-road vehicle corridors cutting through the so-called wilderness. Um, we're getting bills legislated with where where livestock grazing has even greater rights in wilderness than it does on non-wilderness public lands. Um, and and the other thing that's happening, um, in addition to a lot a lot of damaging incongruous activities being allowed in some newly designated wilderness areas, is that um, the agencies are looking at wilderness totally in terms of recreation, and so they get these collaboration processes together. Uh, which many environmental groups are buying into. And the idea is to come out with a wilderness boundary that doesn't offend anybody. And this is the approach that's taken now by a lot of the national conservation organizations, where instead of identifying uh, an undeveloped roadless wild area on public lands, drawing a line around it, and developing a strong grassroots campaign for getting it designated wilderness. Um, what these groups are doing instead is they're sitting down with all of their traditional opponents and drawing wilderness boundaries that exclude every place the logging industry wants to log. They exclude every place that mountain bikers want to ride their toys. They exclude every place where the snowmobilers want to go. They exclude areas of potential oil and gas leasing. They exclude this. They exclude that. And what you have is a watered-down, tiny, truncated chunk of so-called wilderness that's shaped like an amoeba with a lot of edge and minimal interior habitat. And, of course, conservation biologists can go into long uh, discussions on, on why uh, we need uh, minimal edge and maximum interior habitat. So we're getting what some people call wino wilderness, wilderness in name only. And the problem with that is not only that it fails to protect wilderness values on the ground, but it gives people the wrong impression of what wilderness really is. It makes people think that it's okay to be standing on a ridge and looking down at a strip mine that's right off the wilderness boundary because that area was excluded so that nobody was offended. And it gives people the idea that wilderness is just an outdoor recreation area. You know, I, 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 I tend to call it the outdoor gymnasium syndrome um, where people just look at wilderness in terms of what can it do for me? whether I'm uh, a radical mountain biker who uh, wants to ride all the backcountry trails or a snowmobiler or uh, a, a motorcyclist or a four-wheel enthusiast or, or the timber or mining industry, for that matter. Um, we're looking at wilderness in the 21st century too often in terms of what's in it for me. And instead of being viewed as a large chunk of evolving wild country where evolutionary processes can continue on their 3.8 billion year long journey, we're looking at public wildlands as outdoor gymnasium lands. 
and it's giving people the, the wrong impression. And what what what's particularly disturbing, Jack, is that some of the major national environmental groups are totally buying into this. I, I even went to a, a seminar at a conference where a representative of the Wilderness Society carefully explained how you exclude all areas of potential conflict to come up with a wilderness boundary that nobody's going to object to. And that's the antithesis of what the founding fathers and mothers of the wildland conservation movement had in mind. And, uh, you know, I, I, I see the Wilderness Society going down that road, and I see people like Bob Marshall and Aldo Leopold spitting in their graves. Well, you've perfectly illustrated here the, the, the number one reason for a group called Wilderness Watch. I mean, we can't take our eye off the ball ever because there, there's if we go too far in one direction going, OK, we need these. We've got these maps of all the places, maps that you and Dave poured over and created uh, long ago saying and they're still relevant that a lot of those areas are still in play most of them probably oh absolutely and you guys did an incredible job actually we're going back to that and dave is updating um rewilding north america uh two uh which will be out this year uh if everything goes great, great. and uh, we're using all those maps and he's updating all of these different places stats and as we focus on those things, it's really good to know that there are always people and organizations like you guys out there keeping an eye on what these guys do when our backs are turned. Well, you know, there, there's two uh, really general aspects to wilderness conservation in the United States. And, and one is, obviously, um, there's millions and millions of acres of wild public lands out there that need wilderness designation or they're not going to stay wild. And, and that's, um, you know, that, that's always been the major focus of the public lands conservation movement. Uh, but then once they're designated wilderness, uh, we can't rest on our laurels and assume that um, Congress and the agency bureaucrats are going to respect the Wilderness Act and manage wilderness as the uh, authors of the Wilderness Act had intended and in fact, uh, you know, that's why groups like Wilderness Watch, who uh, who take the agencies um, to task in in the legal in legal venues um, when they uh, are are trying to get around the provisions of the Wilderness Act. So you know, keeping wilderness wild once it's already designated wilderness is every bit as important as the need to designate new areas. Um, but we were talking a little bit earlier about the half-Earth thing. Mm-hmm. And um, in the United States, in the 48 contiguous states out, outside of Alaska and Hawaii, um, about 2.5% of the land area is designated wilderness. And a calculation that I made um, when I was, uh, well, I think it's when Dave and I were researching um, the big outside is that I I calculated that if every federal public land that qualified for wilderness designation um, were to be designated tomorrow by an act of Congress, of course, dream on, but basically every roadless, undeveloped chunk of public wildlands that qualifies for wilderness under the stipulations of the Wilderness Act of 1964, if they were all to be designated wilderness tomorrow, 
um, we would have about nine or ten percent of the land area of the lower 48 states in a wilderness condition. And so, you know, when you have people like Ian Wilson talking about we need half the planet protected, that tells you right there that we have a long way to go. Um, another way to look at it is about a third of the land area of the United States uh, is public land. I'm not talking about state lands like the Adirondack Forest Preserve in New York, but I'm talking about federal public lands managed by the four federal public land management agencies, uh, the Forest Service, the Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, those agencies manage about a third of the land area of the United States. And if the vast majority of public lands were managed as nature reserves rather than smorgasbords of resources to be extracted by self-interest, we would take a giant step towards reaching that 50% goal. And of course, restoration and reestablishing migratory corridors um, and, uh, and, and targeting particular areas that are called biological diversity hotspots. Um, that's all part of the equation as well. But basically, when you look at what we've done in the United States, uh, I think there's 100, 500, 8 million acres of designated wilderness, uh, much of which is in Alaska. Uh, but still, we've come a long way. But compared to where we need to be to help truly arrest this galloping loss of habitat and biological diversity, we still have a long way to go in the United States. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. How do national parks sit with you in, in whatever part they would play in figuring into that halfness? You have a very, very pure idea of what wilderness, and, and I share that, we all do, of, of what wilderness really truly is. And in order to get to half, I hear a lot of the people in the half-earth movement talking about including many, many different types of protections to get at least on paper as close to half as we can get. How do national parks figure into that in your mind? Well, absolutely, and I agree with, with what those people are saying, that, um, you know, we're, we're not going to have 50% of the land area of the lower 48 states as inviolate big chunks of wilderness. We're already beyond where that's possible. Um, but national parks are certainly a part of the equation, and when I, when I talk about, um, you know, a third of the United States is public land, uh, managed by one of the four federal agencies, the national parks are part of that. Um, when I when I calculate that uh, about 10% of the United States um, could be designated wilderness because it still fits the definition under the Wilderness Act, um, the various chunks of national park backcountry um, that qualify for wilderness designation are very much a part of that. And uh, I'm of the opinion that national park backcountry areas need to be designated wilderness every bit as much 
as Forest Service or BLM areas, which have gotten the the bulk of conservationist atten- attention, just because those areas are. Uh, I mean, the, those two agencies, the Forest Service and the BLM, are are so much aligned with um, the timber, uh, mining, oil, and livestock industries that conservationists feel getting those lands protected are the top priority. But we ignore the national parks at great risk to biological diversity and and to wilderness in general. Um, I don't know if you remember, but when uh, during the Bush-Cheney administration, uh, there was a proposal to uh, move in the direction of opening national park backcountry to mechanized vehicles, starting with mountain bikes and snow machines. And um, that was beaten back, of course, because it was a very unpopular proposal, but it illustrates um, the need for wilderness designation in the national parks because there's no guarantee that we're always going to be able to beat back proposals like that. And in some more subtle ways, there are a lot of incongruities in the, the management of national park backcountry that um, that really doesn't jive so much with the requirements of the Wilderness Act. So, you know, I, I hear a lot of Park Service people talking about how we're managing, for example, in my home area here, the Yellowstone backcountry as, as de facto wilderness, even though it's not formally designated. Um, but they're not really managing it as de facto wilderness. They're uh, manipulating the habitat. They're using chainsaws for clearing trails. And in uh, some national parks, they're allowing structures to be built in so-called de facto wilderness areas. And, of course, as the population of the United States continues to grow and there's more and more demand for for uh, mechanized recreation, not to mention resources that can be extracted, I think it's safe to assume that as we move forward into the mid-part of the 21st century, that no lands are safe, even national park backcountry lands, um, without that added layer of protection provided by the Wilderness Act of 1964. Another another example that just recently came to mind, um, uh, about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, um, some of the local chambers of commerce in communities surrounding Yellowstone, not all of them, but a couple of them, um, came up with a proposal to the Park Service to build more roads through the backcountry of Yellowstone so they could bring in more motorized tourism. Huh. Um, and, you know, that, that of course, was beat down by an outraged public who thought it was a really bad idea. And, you know, happily, our local chamber of commerce here in, in Garden, near near us in Gardner, Montana, was opposed to that. But, you know, uh, national parks um, are a better layer of uh, protection than national forest or BLM land without wilderness designation. Um, but national parks need to be designated wilderness as well. And, uh, you know, here in the Northern Rockies, we have some of our iconic national parks, some of the world's most iconic national parks, Yellowstone, the world's first national park, Grand Tetons, Glacier. There's not a square inch of designated, uh, fully protected wilderness in any of those parks in my part of the country. And, and that's a damn shame. It is. 
in in light of uh, everything that you've seen, the different attacks, um, and by the way, those guys are always just. It feels like me. They're the, to me. They're always waiting in the wings to introduce those crazy writers um, and bills to open up places, put roads in places. Um, the Bush Cheney thing. I, I I guess I could think of about five or 10 other instances where that's reared its head since then, you know, it just feels like there's always somebody ready to pounce at any given moment, depending on the political winds of the time. Um, Do you, with your perspective now, um, looking back, do you feel like you would do anything if you had the chance to do make any changes to our, our beloved wilderness act to put more protections in to give it more teeth where we didn't even know it would need it until we saw how it was being attacked over the years. Is there anything you would change, add to it um, to strengthen the protections through the act itself? You know, hindsight is always um, 2020 and uh, you know, and sometimes hindsight becomes wishful thinking um, when if you were actually able to turn back the clock, you might not be able to accomplish what you're wistfully or wistfully thinking would have been great. But, um, you know, one version of the Wilderness Act, uh, and, and there was uh, a few dozen versions of the Wilderness Act introduced in Congress before it was finally passed on September 3rd, 1964. But one of those versions would have had, uh, would have automatically designated wilderness um, uh, to all Forest Service inventory roadless lands, and uh, and 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 uh, of course that that didn't make it through. Uh, would have been great if it had. Um, in addition, it would be great if uh, the livestock special provision was not included in the Wilderness Act of 1964. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I think we are moving in the direction of, of less and less livestock and wilderness. Uh, but really, the Wilderness Act of 1964 is, you know, you can nitpick a little bit of wording here and there, and, and definitely, you know, the, the grandfathering in li- of livestock use, um, the the mining clause that ended on December 31st, 1983, the provisions that allow for water projects on the presidential proclamation um it would be it would have been great to have had a a little bit of a cleaner wilderness bill but when you look at the language that's in that piece of law that was written by howard zonheiser uh then of the wilderness society uh he, he was the executive director and he unfortunately died right before the bill was enacted but the language his language is absolutely brilliant um to describe a wilderness area in terms of being untrammeled, um, a, a very unusual use of a word that simply means unregulated or under, un, uncontrolled. It means that wilderness areas are managed to be wild, uh, and that means fires, floods, predation and prey, uh, predator-prey relationships, um, all of the wild, natural, sometimes inconvenient forces to humans um, that stir the pot of evolution and keep things dynamic. All of those forces are part of the wilderness environment. Uh, it's not just about scenery. It's not just about recreation. Uh, that It's really important to realize that. Well, that just bumps right back up against the, the, the idea of people's understanding 
over the decades of what wilderness really is. And when you said the word roadless, it's the first time I'd heard the word out loud in too long. Um, we used to that's, talk about that's, roadless. That's I'm, so, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> well, I mean, it, we it's not in the common vernacular these days. People don't measure the value of places as much as we did and certainly as much as you guys did when you're putting all of these maps together and everything. That was one of the giant criteria. It's an obvious piece of criteria. It's, you know, it's obvious that that's going to be there. But um, it just occurred to me that it just doesn't come up. We were roadless this and roadless that in the 90s and and the 2000s. And then it just sort of died out. And we just more amorphously talk about places like wilderness or not. And it just it just struck me. I just thought that was kind of wild. There are things that slip away over time that I've seen when I see people out there advocating for wild places or restoring places, reconnecting places. I notice these things. I notice pieces of vocabulary when you really isolated the untrammeled, the word, the phrase. It made me think about some other things that have been missing um, over the years from the the new generation of advocates quiver of of words to describe what all of this really truly means well and and that is unfortunate but i've 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 experienced the exact same thing in dealing with many of the um organizations in, in this part of the country and and unfortunately um really all, all over the country uh that a lot of conservation organizations are now uh, staffed by people who aren't first and foremost wilderness people. And for whatever reason, many of these groups are actually working to undercut the efforts of the more grassroots organizations. There's a lot of really good conservation organizations in the country, uh, but a lot of listeners might be surprised to learn that groups like the Wilderness Society are are no longer fighting for big chunks of inviolate wilderness. Um, you know, I, I described earlier how one of their employees gave a seminar on how you draw a wilderness boundary that is so small it doesn't offend anybody. Hmm. And uh, in this part of the country, we have three organizations, uh, the Wilderness Society, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, and the Montana Wilderness Association, um, who have all gone down that road of excessive compromise and collaboration with traditional wilderness opponents. And they are constantly uh, pulling the rug out from under grassroots organizations that are still fighting to protect wild roadless areas. And, um, and, and, and the tragedy of it is, is that these organizations have big names, they're well-known, um, they tend to suck up resources that could otherwise go to groups that are doing a much better job at protecting wild things and wild nature and wild wilderness. Do you think somebody could come along today and do what you guys did with Earth First? Or has that power and the sucking up of the money and everything, has that had an effect on whether or not the proper churn that I feel like that's what Earth First represented in many ways, which was, hey, if you don't listen to us, you're going to have to deal with these guys. And it, 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 it leveled the playing field. And so many people have said it in so many different ways. But nowadays, it feels like 
it feels like the space for something that like what you guys created is not as big at least, or maybe it's not even there at all. Are you worried about those groups continuing to suck the air out of the room to the extent that they pretty much have total control? I don't think it's, it's accurate to say that they have total control and, you know, and, and, and it, there's always the option of grassroots activists who understand that sitting down at the negotiating table with a compromise proposal right out of the gate is not just uh, ethically wrong, but it's it's stupid politics. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of groups, a lot of grassroots groups in the conservation movement that understand that, and that haven't gone down that road of compromise collaboration. Um, and what you can do, there's an example right here in uh, southwestern Montana where a group of fairly experienced activists got together and, uh, and, and formed a, a new outfit called the Gallivan Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance, um, which is to promote the, the protection of roadless wildlands in the northern greater Yellowstone ecosystem. This group that uh, I'm kind of peripherally involved with now, I was one of the people who helped getting it off the ground at first, um, and this is a group that's supporting wilderness designation for every remaining roadless area on the Custer Gallatin National Forest. And nice. the long-term hope is to um, start showing people that the Greater Yellowstone Coalition's way uh, of selling out wilderness is not the only way. And, uh, you know, so there is always the option for grassroots citizens to, to get together and form groups that are uh, a, a really good alternative to these outfits that have um, lost their way. That's a really great example. So the answer, uh, you're not really, uh, I mean, do you have a front row seat to why my question is not as serious as I thought it was? Great. Very good news. <laughs> and people need to know that. Well, people need to know that you can't just rely on an organization. You may just be the next executive director of a brand new organization if you can't get satisfaction with the powers that currently be. Absolutely. And we need to see a lot more of that. You know, there's a lot of people moving into the Rocky Mountain region because it's a beautiful place. And it's also a symptom of overpopulation. The other uh, thing that few people want to talk about, but um, a lot of people moving into this part of the world and they are really enamored with the beautiful wild country that surrounds their valleys and uh, they want to help keep it wild, and so they they join the environmental organizations with the biggest name that they that gets the most press, and uh, they just assume that the Greater Yellowstone Coalition or the Montana Wilderness Association or the uh, the Idaho Conservation League uh, they just assume that those are the organizations to support, when in reality those organizations are undercutting. Um, real conservation that uh, the smaller, less well-known groups are uh, are fighting, are fighting for, and yeah. uh, you know, so it's it's frustrating. But there are things that can be done, and uh, we just can't let those outfits uh, usurp the entire conservation movement anymore because they're they they full they they've 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 outgrown their usefulness in many ways, and in some cases, they're even more counterproductive than they are useful. It's not just a question of uh, these groups or 
are, are not strong enough or not radical enough or anything like that. They're actively undercutting uh, real conservation efforts. The Greater Yellowstone Coalition recently signed off on uh, supporting the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services uh, taking the grizzly bear off the endangered species list. And now we have to fight hunting proposals in the three states that have the remaining grizzly population, Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. Um, so, you know, it's just one thing after another, but you just can't let that uh, that get to you. you, you you've got to keep on, you know, keep on keeping on and, and uh, let people know, letters to the editor, op-eds in newspapers, interviews like this. Um, get the word out there that, that that we need to protect every last remaining shred of wild country and build on that. Absolutely. And you're not just saying that, you're one of the people who absolutely knows from experience. Um, that churn at the grassroots level absolutely has to be healthy and continuous. Because I think as everybody gets bigger and gets you know more established and more bureaucracy, as, as we have had thousands of conversations over the years about this kind of thing, uh, the only antidote to that is precisely what you started out in the movement doing and have done ever since. So you know uh, from firsthand experience that this is that is the way. No, no I mean, I, uh, I, I agree. And, you know, I've been um, a passionate defender of wilderness for 40-something years. I've also been a wilderness guide for 41 years. And I've made, I spent most of my time and and uh, made my living entirely uh, by running a wilderness along with my wife, Marilyn. Uh, we, we ran Big Wild Adventures, a wilderness backpacking guide outfitting service. And uh, we did it for 41 years and recently sold the business to a couple of our guides and retired. But in taking thousands and thousands of people out in the wilderness for over four decades, um, we also learn to appreciate the fact that most Americans, even educated Americans, don't know much about public lands. Um, they don't know what the term roadless area means. Uh, they don't even know the difference between the Forest Service and the Park Service. Um, you know, they use the term park ranger interchangeably or forest ranger interchangeably. And, you know, there's, we, 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 we need to get into the school systems for one thing and teach young Americans about public lands and the importance of keeping um, big chunks of wild country intact and, and restoring wild nature as well. Because um, if we can't uh, get young people excited um, and, uh, about wild nature, then it doesn't have a real good future. So once you give them the information and let them know that the Forest Service is bulldozing thousands of miles of new roads into backcountry areas every year, or that there's uh, 320,000 miles, right? Now, I think the figure is now over 400,000 miles of constructed roads just in the national forest system, and that large areas were getting left out of uh, our best protective category, designated wilderness, just so people can ride snow machines and mountain bikes, for example, in backcountry areas. Once, the, once these folks get this information, they're outraged, and some of them become active and start writing letters and forming groups. So, 
you know, I in in many ways I think that uh, my recently ended career as a wilderness guide and outfitter probably did as much to expose uh, thinking people to the importance of wilderness um, as any uh, of the you know, more politically. Um, or, 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 or of any aspect of the political activism that I've been involved with for the same amount of time. I, I think getting people out into the wilderness and um, the wilderness teaches what they need to learn um, because it's just such a great teacher intrinsically. Well, that's a great way to uh, to end our segment today. Howie, it's been a very big honor for me to talk to you. You've been on my list of people to meet. I wish it was in person, and I hope it soon will be, but this is the next best thing. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth today. Well, it's been my pleasure, Jack, and uh, it was great talking with you, and uh, I'm sure we'll keep in touch, and I look forward to hearing more from you. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.